I will encourage you on this note as we go through this study. When you take Ecclesiastes piece by piece, it can kind of leave you feeling empty until you get the whole big picture of everything that's going on. Because since, in a sense, it's a whole message, but it's 13 chapters. I'm not going to preach all 13 chapters in one Wednesday night. But if, you want, if you're feeling kind of empty and let down, that's really kind of the purpose of the book because he's showing us the emptiness that is life un- apart from God. And that the only true fulfilling way to live our life is with God. But as we take this piece by piece and as we study through this book bit by bit, we may be left some at the end uh, of a particular night, like even tonight, going, oh, this feels like we're not getting there anywhere. This feels hopeless. And in a sense, I would say this is maybe part of the purpose of why he wrote this book the way he wrote it. Because he's helping us to explore all the different ways that you can live life. All the different focuses. Kind of think of it, if you will, like you, like you look at a map. And maybe you've been skiing before, or maybe you've been hiking in the mountains before, and on the map you see all these trails going this way and that way and all different direction. And the book of Ecclesiastes, in a sense, is sort of like someone has laid out for us a map of life. And there's all kinds of different ways that you can live your life. You can go this way, you can go that way, you can go this way or that way. And sometimes, I think, for most of us, we probably pick between one or two different ways and say, well, I think this is going to be better than this. And what he does for us in Ecclesiastes is, in a sense, explores all the different possibilities that are out there. Hey, we could go this way. and Here's what we might end up with. If we went this way, this is how we would end up. It's almost as if he's sort of taking us down these different directions and looking at these different possibilities of how we could live life and then sort of showing us the futility of living any life apart from God. And it's really helpful thing if we'll listen to the instruction, because this is coming from God, spoken from the wisest man who ever lived, on how to live our life. Now, some people insist on doing things the hard way. But God's word has given us his, or God has given us his word to instruct us or to teach us in the right way. And one of the things I think that's helpful, in a sense, he almost takes the position, it would seem, as someone who is a bit of a skeptic or a bit of a scoffer almost to look at different things. Ah, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. So for someone who's coming to following God from a position of a bit of skepticism, I think this is actually a very helpful book. Because it kind of takes their position, the position of a skeptic, the position of someone who's not really sure if following God really makes sense. And maybe it would make sense to go down this other particular path. And he shows them the logical end of all those different paths. And then through the whole message of the book, we'll see as we get to the end of the book, he brings it all back around together and say, well, if that doesn't work, if that doesn't work, if this isn't possible, then there must be this way. And it is to follow God. So I would say that kind of sums up the message of the book in just a few paragraphs there. But let's go through and look at this together tonight. Start reading, if you will, with me in verse 1. I'll make a few comments, and then we'll go on and look at some more in chapter 1. Ecclesiastes 1, chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. 
So right here we have introduced to us who the author is of this book. Obviously it's a book of the Bible, it's inspired by God, but the human author, we believe, was Solomon. Well, Solomon was the son of David. He also was a king in Jerusalem. Those are pretty straightforward, but then that term preacher is one that could catch us off guard a bit when we think of Solomon. This is one who is there to declare the truth. I think another interesting and and helpful idea for us to think about, even with the idea of a modern-day preacher, a preacher should not be declaring their own truth. They should be declaring the truth that comes from God. And as we read this book, I want you to understand this isn't Solomon's truth. This is God's truth that Solomon is declaring to us. And so as we listen to this, Realize this is Solomon. The Bible says he was the wisest man who ever lived. So he has taken and he has taken what's going on in the world around him. He's considered different things, and then he's declaring to us what he's discovered, and he's declaring to us the truth. So what did he discover? Well, let's look at verse number two. Because if The author is found in verse 1. I would say verse number 2 is kind of the motto for the book. Verse number 2. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does this mean? Well, the word vanity is a word that means a wisp or vapor, a puff of wind, a mere breath. It's it's nothing that you can get your hands on. It's as close to zero as you can possibly get. It's nothing. It's emptiness. This book really is about the vanity or the emptiness that is life. And what makes the reading of this way of looking at life so discouraging is that he's not just saying this is a little flicker of vanity or maybe kind of a frivolous thing. He's literally saying it's not just something on the surface. This is saying there is, there is nothing. This is the sum total. You add it all up, add up everything that there is in life, everything that there is in the world, and it's empty. It's nothing. Wow, you were right. This does sound discouraging. All is vanity. Now, I would ask you this. So, here's a question we need to consider as we're studying this book. By saying all is vanity, is he including, is he saying that God is vanity? That godliness is vanity? Well, I would hope as a Christian we would say, well, of course not. He couldn't be saying that because we know that's not true. And while we do know that's not true from other passages of Scripture... Here, right in this book, we can see that he's not speaking about God. Even right here in this chapter. Look at verse number 3. What profit hath a man all of all his labor which he taketh, here it says, under the sun. This phrase, under the sun, is used about 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it, it, if you can understand it this way, by saying something is under the sun, he's not referring to... God, he's referring to a human perspective. We live at the ground level, if you will. We can only see what's under the sun. God can see everything. 
So as we understand this book, when he's speaking about vanity, understand the parameters around which he's speaking of vanity or speaking of emptiness. He's saying under the sun, and he'll keep repeating that phrase over and over throughout the book. So when you see that, remember, okay, what's he saying is vanity? Everything from a human perspective under the sun, what we can see, what we can understand in our own strength, it's empty. It's worthless. It's vanity. So this vanity or this uh, emptiness leaves us or could leave us very discouraged. And as we study through this book, the preacher of this book, not me, but Solomon in here as he's declaring this to us, he will help us consider the various options and paths of life and help us to think about them at a deeper level than we might otherwise think about life. And so that we can see whether or not each of these different paths is vanity or not. At the end of the book, He'll leave us with there's only one way left. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. But let's work our way there, because while we know the end and we know the answer, and if you're not sure about the answer, you can go to chapter 13 and you can read the end for yourself, and it shouldn't spoil it for you. But I think walking through this and feeling the tension of his argument and feeling what's going on and really trying to walk through this mentally with him will help us, I think, as Christians, to increase our faith in God. Because it gives us an opportunity to consider, well, what if we weren't following God and if we tried something else? Would that work? What if we tried this? I think one thing, one goal we should have as we study this together is, is to increase our faith in God. The second thing I think that should be a goal for us as we study this together on Wednesday nights is that it should increase our ability to be able to share the truth about who God is with others. Because I think while we might not all admit this out loud, at least for me, sometimes in the back of my mind, every once in a while I have a little bit of doubt. Well, what if that other way really is better? How do I really know that this is right? And this is one of these books that I think to the believer can give us a lot of confidence in the Lord, in our own faith, in our own walk with the Lord, but also in our confidence in our witness to other people. And so we'll see that tonight. Well, I've titled this message tonight, The Treadmill. The Treadmill. All of us, I'm sure, love treadmills, right? It's, it's one of those instruments of torture that uh, was invented with the idea of exercise, right? But if you think of a treadmill on its own, right, it's, uh, it's sitting there in the corner. You get on that treadmill. You can spend as long as you want on that treadmill, but when you get off, you won't have moved forward or backwards, hopefully, very far at all. If you move backwards on a treadmill, it's a dangerous thing, right? You've, I'm sure seen videos of people being thrown off the back of those things. But if you look at a treadmill for just what it is, and say, well, I'm hoping if I get on this treadmill, I'll end up somewhere different than where I started, you will be sorely disappointed. Now, if you look at the treadmill as a means of exercise to lose weight or to get in better shape, in fact, a treadmill can have a wonderful purpose. And I think the same thing is true of life, and we're going to see in these next several verses here kind of a treadmill described for us. And so we can either look at that treadmill of life as boy, we're running really hard and not getting anywhere. 
it's worthless. Or we can look at it as maybe there's a bigger purpose here and my perspective is wrong. Because again, if I look at a treadmill as just a, a vehicle to get me from point A to point B, I won't go very far. But if I look at it as something that has a different purpose than moving me from point A to point B, maybe a treadmill can be a very valuable thing. So let's look at these verses together and read about this proverbial treadmill. Verse number three, What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? He asks this question, what profit? This is a very important consideration of this book. And in fact, this word profit, this Hebrew word that's translated profit, is only used in the Bible in the book of Ecclesiastes. Kind of interesting. And it's used several times, four or five times here in this book. He asks this question, what profit? Or there is no profit. Or he uses this idea of profit. I wrote down a couple ideas here. First of all, someone could say in their life, well, I'm working, my purpose, my profit is to make a better world for myself. Well, what would Ecclesiastes say to that person? Well, look at verse number four. One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. And I would say to the person that says, well, my purpose in life is just to work to make a, a better place for myself. Well, the reality of verse 4 is there's no profit in that. If the focus of your life is just getting more for yourself. Why? Because your generation's going to pass away. You're going to die. So yeah, you might get a better place for yourself for a little while, but if we follow that path of life or that purpose of life to its end... What do we find? Emptiness. Vanity. It's nothing. Yeah, you might be really rich, but it's over and it's done. And who really cares? Maybe some of you read today, Jeff Bezos announced that he's getting a divorce today. How sad. Here's a man, the wealthiest man in the world. They actually did an article on him last year. Somebody wrote an article and said, we think he's the wealthiest man who's ever lived in all of history. I don't know if that's true. I think that, again, that's pretty hard to measure, but worth some $140 billion or something like that. He's worth all that money and he can't figure out how to keep his marriage together. What does it profit? What does it profit? You say, well, I'd still like to have all that money. Sure, who wouldn't? But his generation's going to pass too. I mean, it's hard to even imagine what that sum of money is like. He and his wife together right now are currently the own more land in the United States than any other people. They own some 400,000 acres just in Texas, out in West Texas, where he has his, uh, his uh, space exploration company out there based. It said if, if, they, if they go through with the divorce, they live in Washington, then they, they legally everything had to be split 50-50. She'll become the wealthiest woman in the world overnight. And he'll still be the fifth wealthiest person in the world. Even after you take everything he has and divide it in half. Wow, that guy's worth a lot. But what profit? If I'm just working to make this world a better place for myself, even though there might be some good, a good ride along the way, at the end, if I follow that all the way to the end, it's empty. 
Here's the second way that somebody could potentially look at life. They might say, well, my purpose, or I'm working to make a better world, not for myself, but for my children and grandchildren. That sounds like a more noble cause, right? Not as selfish, I'm more giving. And yet, if this is the sole purpose of our life, there's really no purpose in this either. This is emptiness as well. It says again in verse 4, One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. So the generations come and go, but the earth just continues. It's the same. Or look at verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come after. I'm going to leave a legacy and people are going to remember me. No, they won't. They'll forget you too. I mean, that's what he's saying. You say, well, no, but we... People are forgotten. Eventually in time, we'll all be forgotten. So if we're living to be remembered by our posterity, by making a better world for them, again, if that's our... I'm not saying these things are all bad, right? It's not all bad to take care of your kids. That's not what we're saying. But if that's what my whole life is about, it's really empty. It's emptiness. And yet, as we think about the world we live in, don't we see a lot of people, I mean, those two things, either making it better just for themselves, get all they can get, or make it better for somebody else, their kids, grandkids, or family, or friends, or whatever, that's kind of the sole end of people's life. Well, I'm living to make sure there's no more little doggies puppies that die on the street. Okay, well, that's good, but you're going to die someday, and so are the puppies. You know, like, it's empty. It's empty. Here's another way that some people could look at the world. Well, I realize if I just live for myself, I live for others, that's empty. I'm looking to have a better understanding of this world. I want to have a better grasp on on everything, because if we understand ourselves, if we understand this world that we live in, we're going to move into some sort of higher being or higher level of, of, of enlightenment. And there are some religions that kind of look at things that way. Maybe I will, when I reincarnate, I'll come back as somebody better because I've understood something better. Well, I would say this also has... No profit. Let me look at, show you these verses and show you why. Look at verse 5. He, he takes this mirror, if you will, and we're kind of examining ourselves in it and saying, what profit is there if a man labors all his life and the generations are going to pass away? And now he turns the mirror, if you will, and points it at the creation. Okay, well, let's look at the world then. If we have a better understanding of this world, maybe that will give us some help. Well, verse 5. The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to his place where he arose. All right, so I'm studying the sun so I can learn something. Well, it comes up, it goes down, and then then it just comes right up again in the same place, and it goes down again, and it comes up, and it goes down, and, and, and we can study the creation, we can study the solar system, we can study the stars and the moon and be fascinated by all the inner workings of how it all goes together. But at the end of the day, it's all just following the same pattern over and over and over. And that in and of itself at the end is emptiness, it's vanity. 
He, he then gives us the example, not just of the sun, but in verse 6, the example of the wind. He says, the wind goeth toward the south and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. You might say, well, I know the sun, it follows a set pattern, but the wind, I mean, who can tell what the weather is, right? We're always getting new weathermen, you know, in Houston, new people. Maybe somebody else will tell us what's really going to happen. Who can say what the wind's going to do? But at the end of the day, yeah, the wind swirls all around, but it swirls down south for a while, and then it swirls back to the north, and then it swirls east, and it swirls west, and the wind does what it's going to do. It's just following its cycle. The winds follow a cycle. And then he gives us the example of the waters. Verse 7, all the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. That seems kind of emptiness, doesn't it? Here are those rivers. They're working hard to keep letting water flow through them. And they go into the ocean, but they can't ever fill the ocean up. Why? Well, well, Pastor, don't you know the water cycle? Evaporation happens and the water gets carried back and it gets deposited back in the land. It runs back down again and over and over and over it goes. The sea never fills up. The rivers keep running. says, unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. So the sun follows a cycle, the winds follow a cycle, the waters follow a cycle. Just studying those cycles, while I may learn some things about science and learn some things about how everything works together, it doesn't really give me a higher purpose in life. It's emptiness at the end. Because they all follow their cycles. They all do what they're supposed to do. Verse 8 then says, All things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. I see some interesting parallels in, here in verse 8, back to verses 5, 6, and 7. He's comparing our, the way we look at things as to the way the cycles of the sun and the winds and the water work. You see that there? He says, he talks about our senses. He says, the eye is not satisfied with seeing. Just like the rivers keep running and the ocean never fills up. You can keep looking and trying to learn and get stuff and, and you'll never be fully satisfied. You can go, go look at entertaining things and entertain yourself and entertain yourself, but it doesn't satisfy. He says, the ear is not filled with hearing. I can listen and listen and, and follow people around and try to understand at a deeper and deeper level and yet I'll never learn everything I need to learn. I, I, it's still vanity. It's still empty. And then in verse 9, he says, The things that hath been, it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. There is no new thing under the sun. So he's talked about us in our own humanity, that the generations come, the generations go. He's talked about creation, the world that we live in. The sun follows its pattern. The wind follows its pattern. The waters follow its pattern. Now he moves into history. He says, the things that have happened before, they're going to happen again. And they're going to keep happening over and over. I'm sure you've all heard the quote. Those that don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it, right? Why? Because the same stuff happens. Sure, it's different people, maybe slightly different weapons in their hand or slightly different things, but it's the same types of things over and over and over and over again. Again, it leaves us feeling empty, vanity. 
Let me make one point here at that last phrase of verse 9, because this is something people will often say. There is no new thing, or there is nothing new under the sun. Now, is he saying here, there's never been something new that's invented? Well, what about the microwave? They didn't have... (laughs) What about the cell phone? What about the computer? What about this? What about that? He's referring to this in the same way that we might use it to say, you know, there's nothing new. It's the same game, just different players. You know, we might say something like that in our day and age. He's not referring to say that there's never been something new invented, but while sure, the, the colors might be different, the, the, the way it's presented might be different, but the fundamental principles that guide everything are all the same. There's greed, there's pride, there's lust, there's desire to have more, there's fighting, there's anger, it's all the same. Emptiness, emptiness. Look at verse 10, he says, Is there anything whereof it may be said, See, this is new? It has already been already of old time, which was before us. Verse 11, There is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come thereafter. So is life really just an endless round? Are we on some sort of cosmic merry-go-round that never stops. If we stopped our study here, this book would be very discouraging. But I think that's kind of part of the point. That we listen better when we're put in a position of need or not sure what we're thinking about. This is causing our brain to do some work here. It's a good thing. I would say, again, with the illustration of a treadmill, while a treadmill has a purpose more than just moving us from point A to point B, it's for the purpose of exercise and getting stronger. I would say looking at the brokenness and the emptiness of the world that we live in ought to leave us with a hunger for something more. Ought to leave us with the desire to look for something better, for something different. Ultimately, as we continue this study, we will see that the answer truly is God. And we'll kind of we'll wrap this up tonight, but as we come each week, I want you to be thinking about what are the different things that I am pursuing with my life? What is important to me? What is my purpose? Because even as Christians, we can often fall into the trap of chasing after nothingness chasing after emptiness and how sad it would be for us to get to the end of our life and say oh i look back and it was all vanity it was all empty we'll get into this a little bit more in a few weeks but one of the things as you read this book it's it's really written from the perspective kind of as solemn as he's an older man looking back on his life i've tried this i've tried that and when you read about solomon in in his life you read about the fact this man had a thousand different women that he had relations with. He had all these wives and all these concubines. Well, that should bring some happiness, right? Oh, didn't. Yeah, a lot of problems. And it wasn't because the women were the only problem. He had a problem, too. It was problems on both sides. This Solomon had all the wealth that could be had. People came from around the world to see the wealth of Solomon. 
I didn't bring him happiness. Solomon experienced relative peace and prosperity. He wasn't being attacked by armies and all this when he was king, but he still wasn't happy. So it's helpful for us, too, as we think about this. Here is a man who has lived life. Here is somebody who has experienced it all. Here's a man who was very wise, had the ability to think and to reason and to consider different things, and he's writing some instruction for us. And as he says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. I hope that we'll hear the words of this preacher as we continue this study over the next period of time and uh, wanted to start this off tonight. So anyway, as we live in a world that I think is on that treadmill and doesn't know where they're headed, may we have the light of Jesus Christ to be able to show them the true answers, that Jesus is the answer and Jesus is the hope. And, but also understand, as many people are running on that treadmill, they think they're doing the right thing. I'm working really hard. I'm laboring. Look at, look at this. Look at this. And helping them to understand, helping us to understand that it's empty without Christ.